no other way. We looked at trust in the worship hour, believing that God can do what only He can do, and that He's capable of doing it, even if men have never seen it done before, Hebrews 11. And then obey. Man is expected to do things not because God can't do what He's going to do without the help or aid of man, but because God has the right to designate that certain acts of obedience be obeyed in order for Him to do what only He can do. And we looked in the Bible class hour at how obedience is a key component to the faith equation, trust and obey. And then there's this next line which is offensive to so many people in our modern age. There's no other way? Really, there's no other way? I mean, haven't we heard that illustration there are many different roads that you could take from here to Knoxville, and you might go your path and I will go mine, but we'll both end up in Knoxville even though we travel different roads to get there. And the assumption on the part of some in the religious world is there are many different roads to heaven, and you go your path and I'll go mine, but we'll all end up getting there different ways, but we'll be in the same place. But is that what the Scriptures teach? On the road to heaven, is it true that one way is as good as another? Is that really the honest truth of the matter? I want you to consider this as it relates through the entirety of Scripture. And I want to ask this question as we begin. Has God ever said there's no other way? Has He ever limited things to being done in one way or else no way at all? And the answer is seen in Scripture concerning Noah's ark and the salvation from the flood. Let me ask, was one way as good as another? The answer is obvious. There was only one way to be saved from the flood, and God revealed that way to Noah. First of all, He said in Genesis 6.14, Noah, I want you to make thee an ark of gopher wood. So I asked the question, how many different woods were acceptable to Almighty God in building the ark? Was one type of wood just as good as another? If so, why did God designate gopher wood? Why didn't He just say make an ark of wood? God didn't speak generically on this occasion. He spoke specifically and He said, make thee an ark of gopher wood. So one type of wood was not as good as another. Well, that raises the question, was one length for the ark one breadth, one height for the ark, just as good as another. In the verses that follow Genesis 6.14, Genesis 6.15 and following, he makes it crystal clear that he wanted it this long, this broad, this high. He knew that Noah could count, and he knew that Noah could figure out 300 cubits. He knew that Noah could do exactly what he was being told to do. Some today mock what they call precision obedience and act as if that is legalism, if you ever insist that something has to be done just so, that is legalism. No, friends, if you manufacture laws that God didn't come up with, that's legalism, such as I noted in the morning session, that if they had said, not only must you smear the blood on the two side posts, you must smear it exactly at the spot we have chosen for you to smear the blood. God never designated where on the side it had to be smeared. He just said it had to be on the upper doorpost and the two side posts. And that was not legalism, that was simply obedience. 
and they were capable. Was Noah capable of doing exactly what God asked him to do? And in deciding whether to board the ark, was one location as good as another? Would someone have been just as safe outside the ark as they were inside the ark? Well, obviously the answer to this question is seen in Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 20. It talks about wherein eight souls were saved by water. It wasn't outside of the ark that men were saved. It was inside. That's why God says, come into the ark, the one location for salvation. So wait a minute. If someone had come up to Noah in his day and time and asked this question, are you saying that you believe that when this flood comes, you say is coming, are you saying that only you and the people aboard that ark are going to be saved? Are you saying you and the people on that ark are the only ones who are going to be saved from the flood? Is that what you're saying, Noah? May I ask lovingly this morning, this afternoon, now, what would the right answer to that question have been? If someone had asked Noah, are you saying that only the people aboard that ark will be saved from the flood? Tell me what the right answer would have been. I'm not saying it. God said it to me, Noah could have said. And who am I to change it? If God said that's the location for salvation, who am I to come along and say, well, there might be other ways you could be saved. As long as God says make an ark of gopher wood and doesn't give me any other way to be saved, that's where I'm going to point men to. If they want salvation from the flood, there's your one and only location. It's in that boat right there, inside that boat. That's the only thing God revealed for salvation who do I think I am to act like there might be other ways? So there was just one way. And how should Noah have answered? As I just noted, he should have answered with God's authority as the answer. God is the one who told me to do this in the first place. You know what true arrogance in our day and time is? Acting like it can only be one way and it can be in no other way. That's arrogant, we're told. Let me show you arrogance in answer to this question. If God had said, that's the ark, there's salvation in that, in that ark. And Noah had been asked, are you saying we have to board that ark in order to be saved from the flood? Arrogance would have been this. Well, God said that's the only location for salvation, but I think that's pretty narrow. And so I'm going to presume that there might be other ways that you could be saved. Who am I to say there's only one way? Friend, that would have been arrogance if Noah had answered in that fashion. Because that would have been claiming to know more than God had revealed. And man has no right to change what God has revealed and to start adding alternate ways to it. And we should keep that very much in mind. So in deciding whether to board the ark, we've asked the question, are you saying that only you and the people aboard that ark will be saved? Well, how did God answer that question? In Genesis 7-1, he said, come into the ark. In Genesis 7, 7, Noah went in, and that is where they were kept safe until the flood water subsided and they were able to get off the, off the ark as God directed. And I've already noted the word wherein in 1 Peter 3.20 is key. It shows that salvation was inside a certain location, nowhere else. Now let's talk about what I alluded to a moment ago. In observing the Passover... 
was one way as good as another. Now, after Moses and Aaron revealed God's method for saving the firstborn from the tenth plague, they could have said, there's no other way. Trust what I've just told you and obey it, for there's no other way. God has not revealed any other means of sparing the firstborn than this. Okay, so that raises a question. What is God's specified way, the one way that God revealed they could be spared from the tenth plague? So here, let's look at Exodus 12, 1 and following. I want you to see it in your own Bible, if you will, because there are some things I'd like to slow myself down in spotlight that would, uh, I think, speak to our modern mindset. In verse 3 of Exodus 12, Speak ye to all the congregation of Israel. Everyone is responding, is required to listen to this. All the congregation. In the tenth day, stop right there. Is one day as good as another? No, it needs to be what day? Tenth day. Did God think that they were capable of counting to ten and knowing which day was the tenth day? Yes. Suppose someone had said, you know what, 10th day, I'm pretty busy that day. It'll probably be the 12th before I can get to it. No. God says the 10th day, one day was not as good as another. Notice, of this month. So not the 10th day next month or two months from now. The 10th day of this month, one month was not as good as another in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 3. They shall take every man a lamb. Question, is one lamb just as good as another? No. It needs to be, verse 5, a lamb that's without blemish. A blemished lamb is not as good. Is a one gender of lamb just as good as another? He says it needs to be a male. Is one age just of the first year? You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. Either would be permissible there. But then what, what now? We've got our lamb on the 10th day. It's without blemish. It's a male. It's of the first year. Now what? You keep it till the 14th day of the same month. Now, why would he have to be that specific? Wouldn't they just automatically know it's the same? No, he wants them to know not the 14th day next month or the month after that. 14th day of the same month, one month's not as good as another, one day is not as good as another, because what if someone had said, you know what he's telling us to do on the 14th, I'm so excited to do, I'm going to go ahead and do on the 12th. I'm going to get my lamb on the 10th, and I'll get a head start and do it on the 12th. If God says do it on the 14th, what day will you do it to honor God? 14th. What if you say, I really don't think I can get to it by the 14th. It'll probably be the 17th before I get around. No, no, you don't have that luxury. You do it on the 14th day, and then the whole assembly of the congregation, verse 6 of Exodus 12, shall kill it in the evening. Was one time of day to kill it just as good as another? No. There's no other time other than the specified time of the evening and then what? Now that we've killed this lamb, this approved lamb, what do we do with the blood? Verse 7, they shall take of the blood, strike it on the two side posts. Anything that is the side post is exactly uh, authorized by God. And on the upper doorpost of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they'll eat the Passover, he says. And verse number 12, God says, I'm going to pass through the land of Egypt this night. 
But verse 13, the blood will be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague won't be upon you to destroy you. Now, that's a lot of detail to remember, isn't it? Did God think they were capable of doing what God said do? And what if after hearing this explanation from Moses and Aaron, what if the children of Israel said, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying that the only firstborn Israelites that will be spared are those who do exactly what you just said to do in exactly the way you just said to do it? Are you saying that only those who do these things shall be saved? Aren't there other ways? What would the right answer have been to the question, aren't there other ways to save the firstborn? The right answer would have been trust and obey for there's no other way to be spared from this plague. How should Moses have answered? Well, God said, take a lamb on the tenth day of the first year that is a male, that is unblemished, and keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Kill it in the evening, strike the blood on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the house wherein you eat the Passover. And when you do that, God will pass over your house and not bring death to firstborn individuals in that household. That's how Moses should have answered. I can only tell you what God revealed to us, and if God didn't reveal another way, who do we think we are to reveal another way? I'm so thankful that Exodus 12, 28 rhymes with Genesis 6, 22. In thought, it rhymes. Here's Genesis 6, 22 as it relates to the first example, Noah. And Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Now look at Exodus 12 and verse 28. It says, And the children of Israel went away and did, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. So, precision obedience, is it possible? Yes. God would not ask them to do what they were not capable of doing, and they were obligated to follow God's directions and that's exactly what they did, and thus they were spared, and those who were not under this plan of salvation did not survive, as we see with reference to the Egyptians. Now look at this third example. How many different ways were there for Rahab and her family to be guaranteed salvation from the battle of Jericho? What did they need to do? Trust God's spokesman. What did God's spokesman say? Uh, go to Joshua chapter 2, if you will, for just a moment, and we'll see exactly what God told Rahab, and she would then be responsible for conveying this to her family. Uh, there in Joshua 2.18, Now behold, when we come into the land, thou shalt bind this line of scarlet. What difference does it make whether it's scarlet or some other color, isn't one color as good as another? Well, he says, bind this line of scarlet thread or cord. Is one window as good as an in the window that you let us down by? There was even a specified window. And thou shalt bring thy father and thy mother and thy brethren and all your father's household home to thee, and it shall be, if any of them go out of the doors of thy house into the street, well, their blood's on their own head, will be guiltless. 
So let me ask you, did God provide a designated safe place for Rahab and her family to be guaranteed salvation from the battle? Yes. And where was that? Rahab's house. Picture this, her kinfolk saying, are you sane? We have to come to your house in order to be saved from this battle and the casualties? I'm not saying it. God's spokesman said it to me on behalf of God. And since that's the only way they've promised that you'd be saved, who am I to change it? Why don't you just come to the one place God has designated as your safe place? Why don't you do it? And that's exactly how she should have answered by noting if they had asked her, why do we have to come to your house? Is your house better than our house? No, it's not better inherently, but it's the authorized safe place from Almighty God. God's spokesman told me to do this. Who am I to change it? Why not just come to my house? Now, did they? If you'll go to Joshua chapter 6 and verse 22. Joshua had told the two men that had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house and bring out thence the woman and all that she has, just like you promised her. And so verse 23, the young men that were spies went in, and if there had been a Hollywood camera crew there to film this, here comes Rahab. And then they would have cut to commercial as the door was opening to see, did her mom come? Did her dad come? Did the rest of her kinfolk come? We don't have to wait for a commercial to conclude. We've got the record here. Here comes her father, verse 23, her mother, her brethren, all that she had. They brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. To be guaranteed salvation, there was no other way for that to be guaranteed than to follow God's divine one-way plan that he gave for, Joshua, for Rahab and her family as recorded in Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. Now let's go to the leper Naaman. He wanted there to be another way. He thought there would be another way. He could get cleansed from his leprosy. He was more than willing to trust that God could do it, but he wasn't willing to obey the way God said do it. At first he wasn't because he came to the house and the prophet didn't even come out. You read about this in 2 Kings 5. And when the messenger comes out in 2 Kings chapter 5, what does he tell Naaman to do in order to be cleansed of his leprosy? It's a very simple statement stated there in 2 Kings 5 and verse number 10. Elisha sent a messenger unto him saying, Go wash in Jordan seven times and thy flesh shall come again to thee and thou shalt be clean. And you'd like to read here, simple enough. That's easy. Where's the Jordan River? Let Let me make sure I get to the Jordan River. That's not Naaman's reaction. Naaman is wroth. He went away. He said, behold, I thought, and that's the danger. Oh, when we start allowing what we think to trump what God said, that's why that old statement that used to go around, and I know it was well-intended, but uh, someone, when I was young, pointed out this, and I've tried to repeat it. Did you ever hear that statement that was made? It got popular there for a while. God said it. I believe it, that settles it. And someone noted, rightly so, 
if God said it, that settles it whether I believe it or not. God said, here's what I want. That settles it. Naaman, you have your own ideas preconceived about how God ought to do this. How do you think he ought to do it? What did you think he was going to do? I thought he will surely come out to me. The prophet didn't come out. I thought he will stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. And this struck me. I read it a lot of times before I ever stopped to think, wait a minute, you know what he's expecting? A verbal calling on the name of the Lord in some verbal, give me this cleansing. I'll say the leper's prayer. Ask God to come into my body and eradicate the leprosy. God, please save me from this leprosy now. Amen. And that's not the way God designated it to happen. He told him to dip seven times in the Jordan River, and that's when he'd be made clean. But Naaman didn't want to do it that way. He wants to do it the way he thinks it ought to be done. God, I thought you would have your prophet come out and call on your name and then strike his hand over the leper and, you know, recover the leper. And if I'm going to dip in any water at all, I can guarantee you it's not going to be the Jordan River. Are not Abana and Farpar, my hometown rivers of Damascus, Aren't they better than all the waters of Israel? May I not wash in them and be clean? Naaman, you need to trust and obey and dip in the Jordan for there's no other way. There's no other way to be cleansed for you than that. That's the way God designated. But he turns and leaves in a rage. He's angry. His servants, unnamed, come to him in verse 14 and they Verse 13, rather, and they said, you know, my father, if the prophet had bid thee do some great thing, wouldn't you have done that if it had been some magnificent thing? How much more when he just says simply wash and be clean? It's so simple. Why don't you just do it? He listened to them in verse 14. Then went he down, dipped himself seven times in Jordan. Was one river as good as another, yes or no? Was one method of cleansing just as good as another? Call on the name of the Lord verbally and ask him to cleanse you? No. Is one number of dips just as good as another? Would six dips have been just as good as seven and eight have been just as good as seven? One for good measure? If you want to obey God, then he says, dip seven times in Jordan. You get in the right place. Legalism says, not only must you dip in the Jordan, you must dip here at the spot we've chosen in the Jordan That's legalism, binding where God is never bound. Liberalism says you don't have to dip in water at all. Just pray and ask God who's not confined to one way of doing things. Ask him to cleanse you by a prayer and you'll be just as clean if you're sincere in your heart. That's liberalism, legalism. Here's obedience. It's not liberal, it's not legalism. Dip seven times in the Jordan just like God said and watch what happens when he does. He comes up after the seventh dip and his flesh is like the flesh of a little child, verse 14, and he was clean. Even more important that day for him was that he became a believer in the one true God versus the gods of Syria. And he realized there was only one true God. So Naaman's question, are you saying this is the only way I can be cleansed from my leprosy? Well, I don't like this way. I want to do it this way. No, you, you cannot do it a way of your own. Well, you have the free moral agency to do it that way, but you won't get the blessing. 
And so the prophet gives him the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And that is where Naaman must rest if he's going to get cleansed. Thankfully, he does. Now that's make application to us because we're not living in the Old Testament facing a worldwide flood. We're not facing the death of our firstborn and the 10th plague that's going to happen tonight. We're not facing Jericho being invaded right now. And we're not facing leprosy and the only option being to dip in the Jordan River seven times to get rid of our leprosy. But there are some principles here that do transport over. Concerning the way to heaven, is one way to heaven just as good as another? We would have to say what Jesus said. Sometimes there's only one way that leads to heaven and it's narrow and it leads to eternal life. I'm sure this question on the screen you've been asked at some point in time or will be asked. Are you saying that you're the only ones going to heaven? Have any of you ever been asked that question before? How do, how do we respond to that? I think we've got to avoid two extremes. One is some kind of arrogant response that says, well, duh, how could you not know that? That's not going to be effective. We need to teach the other extreme, though, is we had a bring one day at South Haven years ago when I was the local preacher there. We were having our spring bring Sunday, bring your visitors, bring your guests. And someone came up to me and said, now I have a visitor here today, but I don't, I don't want you to be so specific that, that you offend them in any way when it comes to how to be saved. And, uh, you know, they already think that we're arrogant and you know, they, they said to me the other day, are you, the, you think you and your people are the only ones going to heaven? And I told them that was just a big ugly rumor that someone started and there's not a word of shred of truth to it. And I said, please tell me that's not how that conversation ended. Well, yeah, it is how it ended. It's true, isn't it? Well, let's just visit this. If someone comes up to me and asks me, are you saying that you're the only ones going to heaven the first thing I want to say back in response is, look, I, I would never point you to something I've said as the standard of authority for who's saved and who's not. Would you agree that what Jesus said would be far more weighty and authoritative than anything I would say? Yes. Well, can we look together then at something Jesus said in response to your question? And if they say no, then you're not going to get very far anyway if they're not even willing to look. But if you lovingly say well, Jesus preached a sermon that's one of the greatest sermons ever recorded, ever preached. And in that sermon in Matthew 7 and verse 13, he said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. Verse 21, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But does he ever tell us who will enter the kingdom of heaven? But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Would you agree that the word of God says the way that leads to eternal life is narrow and there are only few that find it? That's what Jesus said. 
Would you agree that the word of God says not everyone that says Lord, Lord is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus said. But he also went on to say who would enter the kingdom of heaven. He that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. True or false? If I do the will of my Father in heaven, I will go to heaven. Yes or no? Yes. If you do the will of the Father in heaven, will you go to heaven? Yes. So when would be a good time for both of us to sit down and study together what the will of the Father in heaven is so that we can both be sure we're going there? And then set up your Bible study and let the Bible do the talking. Because you'll note later on you may want to go back to this passage and point out in verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, look, they're calling him Lord. They're not atheists. They're not Jews who deny his Messiahship as depicted here. They're expressing that he's the Lord and they've even been active on his behalf during their lifetime here on earth. But that same group Jesus will look at that called him Lord, religious, zealous, active people who called him Lord, Jesus will look at them and said, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So how is that possible? It shows us that one can be doing some of what God said, but not sufficiently what he said. And that Jesus wants us to know that the wise man is the one who hears the sayings that Jesus gives and does them. He's the wise man who's built his house on the rock. It's a solid foundation. That's something you can bank on, knowing that you've done what the Lord said do. And I love Matthew 12, 50. Whosoever, this is that occasion when the question was asked, a uh, word circulated to Jesus, first of all, uh, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to talk to you. And Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brethren? I actually read a commentary some years ago that said it had been such a mentally rigorous day for Jesus. He suffered a temporary memory lapse and really didn't remember who his mother and brothers were and had to have someone point them out to him. Come on. Jesus is asking this question on purpose. Who is my mother and who are my brethren? In other words, who is my spiritual family? Then he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same, the same what? The same person who does the will of my Father which is in heaven, that's the same person that is my mother, my brother, my sister, in other words, they're in my family. Trust and obey for there's no other way, no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And that involves being born of water and of the Spirit as John chapter 3 and verse 5 teaches, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. Didn't we just read something about entering the kingdom? Yes. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But who will? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And what does that will include? Uh, being born of water and of the Spirit. And that is clearly explained for us in the book of Acts. As people hear the message of the Holy Spirit and then are seeking the waters of baptism over and over and over again. But I thought all you had to do is just call on the name of the Lord. Didn't that what the Bible says? You know, Peter said in Acts 2.21, Whosoever 
shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But that same man and group of men that said that as they preached on Pentecost went on to say this. In verse 38, 17 verses later, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. By the way, have you ever noticed just how much parallelism there is in one verse to explain the other here? Let me spotlight some phrases and point this out for our consideration. Shall be saved at the end of Acts 2.21. Isn't that the same as having remission of sins? If I'm saved, what's happened to my sins? They've been remitted. So yes, shall be saved is equivalent to for the remission of sins. But when notice on the name of the Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ. So we're looking at parallelism here. And then, okay, wait, now this explains. Whosoever shall call, how would you go about doing that? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Paul, do you have anything to contribute on this from inspiration's pen? Yes. Romans 10, 13, whosoever will call, shall call on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. How, how can they call on him in whom they've not believed? Stop right there. If you can't call on him unless you first believed on him, then believing's not equivalent to calling. Calling comes after believing. And that's important. The believing comes before the calling. Consequently, the religious world says, you're saved the moment you believe. The Bible says, no, now that you believe, you should call on the name of the Lord in order to be saved. And the calling comes after the believing, Romans 10 and verse 14. And does this work with the Apostle Paul's own conversion? Look at it. As you consider Acts twenty-two sixteen on the right-hand side, this is what Ananias told Saul of Tarsus. Arise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul had written this later on, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Any parallelism here? Notice, is there anything in Acts twenty-two sixteen that mirrors or is mirrored by Romans 10, 13? Shall be saved is the same as having your sins washed away. All right, on the name of the Lord, is there, yes, calling on the name of the Lord, Acts twenty two sixteen, is echoed in Romans 10, 13, and now we get it again. The Bible's its own best commentary, therefore arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. It's how you call on the name of the Lord, it's basically you saying to God the same thing Naaman was saying. You're saying, God, you said you would cleanse me of my leprosy if I would dip in this Jordan River seven times. I'm doing what you asked me to do, and I'm calling on you to do what only you can do. Will you in grace and mercy please do what you said you would do when I've done what you asked me to do? So in baptism, we're not dipped seven times, but when I'm dipped one time. I'm calling on God to give me what only He can give me, cleansing through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, as I, as a penitent, confessing believer, have been buried with my Lord in baptism. I've risen to walk in newness of life. I've called on the name of the Lord for salvation by arising and being baptized. And that's how the same man that wrote this could write this and have no contradiction. I mean... 
Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Who wrote that? Paul did. Wait a minute. What's he say here in Romans 6, 3? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. But what's in Christ? Salvation, 2 Timothy 2.10. How do I get into Christ where salvation is located? I call on the name of the Lord. But how do I do that? Oh, I'm baptized into Jesus Christ baptized into his death where his blood was shed. That's how Saul of Tarsus did it. It's how you and I do it. It all matches up. When you look at his conversion, Acts twenty two sixteen, and then what he wrote about it, Romans 10, 13, and what he wrote about it in Romans 6, 3, there's no contradiction here. It all matches up perfectly because of God's word being so simple. So as we close... There's no other way. People say, I'm offended by that because you're suggesting that one church isn't necessarily as good as another. And you know, there is a statement made by the Lord himself, I will build, what are you going to build? My church. Okay, what is the church also known as? 1 Timothy 3.15, the house of God is the church of the living God. So Jesus said, I'll build my church. He could have just as easily said, I'll build my house. And it's going to be a house that all nations would flow into. What have we already learned in this message? Is one house as good as another? Well, you ask, the house built on the sand in Matthew 7. Was it as good as the house built on the rock, Matthew 7? The house built on the rock is better The house was one house as good as another when the flood came in Noah's day. No, one house was not as good as another. There was one house that was a house of salvation. Any location other than that was not a location for salvation. There was just one way to do it then. And during the 10th plague, was one house as good as another during the 10th plague? What if you're in a house with no blood of the lamb, proper lamb, approved lamb, properly applied to the door? And here he started on the upper doorpost. Of course, if he follows God's word, where's he going to do? He's going to put some somewhere on the two side posts as well, so that the whole door is, is covered in, in principle. And so here's a house with no blood at all. Here's a house where they're doing what God said do. Is this house and this house the same when it comes to the tenth plague? No. One house is not as good as another. That is crystal clear. And then when it comes to Rahab, was one house as good as another when it came to Rahab and her family? Listen, the house with the scarlet cord hanging from the window is the the one house where salvation was guaranteed to her. Now that brings me to the closing slides of this message, which my lovely wife helped me make these simple slides years ago in a hotel room, and I've used them so many times in Bible studies at a restaurant and someone's home at the kitchen table, in many gospel meetings. This is just simple stuff. And I tell you, this is one way that I've started answering the volatile question, are you saying that only members of the Church of Christ are going to be saved? And here's what I always want them to know, number one, is the Church of Christ that I'm talking about, when I talk about Church of Christ, is not a denomination known by that name that started here on this continent in the 1800s. That's not the Church of Christ that started that I'm a member of, although those people in the 1800s, if they did what they did in the first century to become members of the church, 
then they would become what they were, members of the same church. But be that as it may, I found the Bible could do its own talking and teaching and this truth could come across in a way that would be uh, very educational and non-confrontational. The Bible's just doing its own work and teaching. So when people ask me that question, I said, can I answer your question by showing you three verses that come from Paul's inspired pen? Just three. Yes? All right. In Ephesians 5.23, the husband's the head of the wife. Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of something. What is Jesus the Savior of according to Ephesians 5.23? And I've never had anyone miss it. He's the Savior of the body. Whose body is it? It's the body of Christ. If Jesus is the Savior of the body, and this man's outside the body, then he's not in that which Jesus is the Savior of. Does this man need to get into the body of Christ to be saved by Jesus since Jesus is the Savior of the body? Where does he need to be to be saved? Never had anyone miss this? He needs to be in here. Why? Because he's the Savior of the body. He's not in the body. That's where he needs to get for salvation to occur. That's simple. It's plain. It's clear. And Ephesians 4.4, the second of three verses. How many bodies are we talking about that qualify as the body of Christ? There's one body. One body, one spirit even as you're called and one hope of your calling. How many bodies are connected to your head? One. And that's the normal way. How many bodies are connected to the one head of Jesus Christ? One body, one head. And so it's not just that this man needs to be a member of anybody. He needs to be a member of the one body. And so at this point in my Bible study, I'll always ask, based on these two verses, since Jesus is the Savior of the body, and since there's only one body, if this is that one body and it belongs to Christ, where does he need to be to be saved by Christ? And the answer, I've never again had anyone miss it that was just letting the Bible do its own talking. He needs to be in the body in order to be saved. The one body that belongs to Christ. And that brings me to the last verse at the top of the screen. Gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is what? which is his body. So wait a minute. If the church is his body, then what could I do with this word here? The church is this. So could I change this word here and make it that word there if I take the word body and change it to the word church? Have I changed the truth of this diagram whatsoever? I have not. The church is the body. So if a man needs to be in the body of Christ in order to be saved, since the body of Christ is the church, then does this man need to be in the church that belongs to Christ in order to be saved? Does he need to be in that safe place? The answer is yes, he does. That's what God said in his word. There's no other way. There's no other way. And friends, may I say this lovingly? 
I told you about one extreme acting arrogant and treating people in a condescending way. How could you not know this? But let me tell you, the other extreme is the one that's prevailing in so many places, and that is we just don't tell them this. Don't let anyone know this is what we believe. That's going to be considered friends. Noah, are you saying that's the only location for salvation? Are you and the people aboard that ark the only ones who are going to be saved? What would the right answer have been? Yes. Are you and the people in the body that belongs to Christ, the church of Jesus Christ, the only ones who are going to be saved? We're talking about people living in this time after the church was established. We're talking about those who have accountable minds. We're talking about those who are sinners who need salvation. Do all sinners who need salvation in this age need to be in the one body that is the church? Yes or no? They do. And that's where we need to preach and never back down. There is no other way. Trust and obey. There's no other way. So if you're out here, where do you need to be before we leave this building today? Get into the body the one safe place, the church that belongs to Christ. It is the one location for salvation. There's no other way. Jesus is the only way. He's not one way to heaven. He's the way, the truth, the life. And no man comes to the Father but by Him. John 14, 6. There's none on the name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. He's the one and only way to the one and only house. Won't you become a member of that household today if you haven't already? And if you're a wanderer from that house, won't you be like the prodigal and come back before it's everlastingly too late? Won't you please? There's no other way. Trust and obey as together we stand and sing, please.